0: Here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. So, today we are going to talk about the fears that are being brought on by the pandemic. Uh, And I know it's happening to so many of us. As the nation struggles to get control of the COVID 19 outbreak, millions of us are experiencing what today's special guests, Daryl and Sarah, van Togrin call existential suffering you know i've actually had people say to me i'm having an existential crisis daryl and sarah authors of the book the courage to suffer are experts in treating this form of psychological trauma trauma that occurs when people are hit with a crisis so severe that they can no longer depend on the ideas, beliefs, and expectations that previously guided their lives. It is a period of intense inner turmoil in which people question the very meaning of their existence. Darryl Van Tongeren, PhD, is an associate professor of psychology at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. He is a social psychologist and has published over 150 scholarly articles and chapters on topics such as meaning in life, religion, virtues, relationships, and well-being. And he is currently an associate editor for the Journal of Positive Psychology and consulting editor for two other publications. Sarah Showalter Van Tangeren, LCSW, is a licensed clinical social worker in the states of Michigan and Virginia. She has more than 12 years of clinical social work experience in settings, such as private practice, foster care, inpatient hospitals, outpatient medical clinics, inter-partner violence shelters, and behavioral health. Sarah specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, existential psychotherapy, and more. I want to hear what they have to say, and I know that you do, so we're going to get started. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Sarah, and welcome to A Fine Time for Healing. Good
1: morning. Thank you so much for having
0: us. Yeah, thank you. We're excited to have our conversation today. Yeah, we're going to have a great conversation. Uh, So why is this, why are we having existential fears, pandemic? Why are we all sort of worrying about where we're going?
2: Yeah, that's a a really great question. You know, I think uh, things
0: like this, this
2: pandemic that we're all experiencing right now, it kind of unearths uh, these existential realities that every human faces. And so a lot of times when these realities are unexamined, we're very fearful of them. And so just briefly I'll, I'll kind of explain these various existential realities and you know why this pandemic might be bringing them up. So for the first existential realities is the idea of groundlessness. So the, the idea of groundlessness is we're not in control of our life and the things that happen, um, but we still have to make a decision in the midst of it. So we still have the freedom to choose, and that's a weighty responsibility. And so for this pandemic, it's really unearthed this uh, reality that control is an illusion. We, we can't control things. Oftentimes things just happen to us. You know, the second existential concern is isolation, and this is the reality that we each have our own ex- our own experiences, and we can't really know what the other person is going through. And pandemic has physically, socially isolated us from one another. And it's just brought this, this reality to the forefront of our minds. A third existential reality is that we all need to navigate our own identity. We need to tell ourselves a compelling story of who we are. And for many of us, this pandemic has shifted our professional identity. Maybe we lost a job or reduced hours or maybe we're disconnected from people that brought us a, a sense of who we are. And then the fourth reality, the one that no one really likes to talk about, is the realization that one day we're all going to die. And this pandemic has brought death into the forefront of all of our awareness. And so really this pandemic is a, is a, a pulling back of the curtain of all of these existential realities. And when we don't have sufficient answers to these questions, it really strains our sense of meaning in life. And we start questioning our purpose and whether or not we're significant and how we make sense of of the world.
0: Wow, that's a lot. That's a very heavy load for all of us to be experiencing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it really is, and it, and it feels like it, it comes from all, the, all these different angles and, and places that people might not even have previously been aware. Well,
1: and what we are trying to say, too, is that in this, you know, these fears that we have of groundlessness, isolation, identity, death, those things have always existed, but what happens is for so many people right now, it's triggering all of them simultaneously And if you think about the times that you've experienced those in the past, whether it's through past trauma or past um, experiences of those things, it's triggering that as well. So not only for people that have experienced or maybe even know those fears quite intimately, they're being re-triggered, re-traumatized by the feeling that their body, their mind, who they are might be experiencing right now.
0: Um, so you talk about catastrophizing, personalizing, emotional reasoning. Um, and can you explain, because I want actually, let's take a step back and explain um, where you came from, um, your personal experience that brought you to really understand um, existential fears and how to, um, get over them or resolve them. So can you talk a little bit about your personal situation?
1: Yeah, so part of our story is like, um you know, we were both professionals. Daryl was a graduate student at the time, um, getting his Ph.D. in social psychology. I was just graduated from my MSW program, and we were living in Virginia, and I was working at the time with uh, comp- with children and families that had complex medical needs. And so, we were really in a sort of professional space, and Carol was studying um, not only this, this, this theory called terror management theory, which is really fascinating and totally worth a Google uh, Google search on that one, uh, but then also meaning in life and uh, big big questions. And then I was working with people who were um, who were suffering; who, who there was no way out, there was no solution. These were chronic, long-term medical conditions like muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis. And I was realizing what I was doing in my – what I was taught in school, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what you were talking about, that idea of contest, Like we have these thinking disorders or thinking errors, and that's what leads to a lot of the crisis. Um, And what I was finding is a lot of my clients are very crystal clear. Um, They were not thinking and not having thought disorders, uh, such as uh, their child will die. Like that's a very crystal clear reality. Um, and so I was realizing that my interventions weren't being as successful as I would have liked. And so uh, I was just very personally curious about existential psychology. So I started reading um, in that. And then during that time, Darrell and I experienced quite a significant loss to the loss of his brother.
2: Right. So it was in my fourth year of my graduate program. My brother had to have a heart surgery that was a follow up to a, an emergency surgery he had had on his heart seven years prior. And he uh, unexpectedly did not survive. And so he, he passed away, leaving his wife and three children under the age of six. And so his three kids were five, three, and nine months. And that really shattered a lot of the assumptions that we had held about, I had held about the world, the ways that I had kind of made sense of things, the, the view that I had of God. And so from both a professional perspective and then also personal Perspective, we realized that a lot of the approaches that people have offered to helping people who are suffering were just falling
1: short. Yeah, so we, we, this book, this work, is is born out of that. It's born out of our personal experience. It's born out of our professional experience. Um, we wanted. We were just finding that there was a giant hole, and you know. And then when we were seeking support, seeking therapy, it took multiple times, multiple therapists to try to find someone that didn't, you know weren't challenging well can you think differently about the tragic loss of your brother it's like you know sometimes it's just tragic uh and I think it was hard to have people that were willing to sit with us in it and so like yeah so this book was born out of that
0: and also you had um an issue with infertility when you had it in your mind that you were going to have a family and that was then you were that you were hit with that as well right
1: yeah, yeah. So part of you know the the continued story of that is you know when Gerald uh, actually right before Gerald's brother passed away, we were starting to have a fan, we We're starting to, to try to have a family and starting to try to get pregnant. And um, because of the, the nature of, of Tim's illness, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a genetic condition. There's an underlying genetic component to that. And so we were told at the time to just put pause on trying to start a family until they could speak, so the doctors could help us figure out what was really going on. Um, and so later on, after many years of lots of doctor's appointment, we sort of got a tentative green light, and we decided, you know what, the risks are worth it, so let's try to start having a family. And uh, after many years of trying, we were eventually realized that we, we were not able to have children, biological children. And so, um, you know, it was one loss upon another that compounded, you um, and I think that was the thing, again, this work is sort of burnout out of, is this reality that we can't change some things even though we wish we would um, and wish we could, but it's sort of this this reality of acceptance, acceptance of these fears, acceptance of of these situations that ultimately um, can help us come to terms with some of these things and become more comfortable with living them. You know, I, I want to be honest, it's not easy. I don't think it's... You
0: know, I don't want to sell it like it's easy. Many people probably listening know that it's not easy. Right. It's not easy. And you say that many clinical approaches view suffering as a problem to be fixed. And then once the symptoms subside disregard the effect of the event itself there is no fixing death infertility loss of a dream or permanent shift of one's identity this is so very true this is this is really where a lot of therapy falls short um, in these situations mm-hmm. and you also say that you challenged every cognitive distortion you had that you know <laughs> you catastrophized that your life is over you personalize that it's all your fault you reasoned emotionally that you're inadequate and you were still left with the fact that you would not be parents and that daryl's genetic future was unknown so yeah. um yeah so you're suffering was not a set of irrational thoughts that needed to be corrected. So what was it? Right. Um, if it couldn't be corrected, what, what what were your thoughts?
1: Well, first we tried to correct them. Let's just, <laughs> let's just say that with a lot of many years of trying to say, okay, if I think about it, if I try differently, if I, if I again, and I think that for some of I think therapy has let people down is this idea that if you just think about it correctly, then you'll be released of anxiety. Or if you just um, have this natural herb or this idea of, you know, uh, natural oils, then you'll reduce your stress and you'll be fine. And, yes, that's a component of it. But that's, in my opinion, that's not healing. Healing isn't the, the absence of symptoms, right? Like I think that's the thing is I, I – I would love to stress to every therapist, every person listening, to is that you know, just like if you were to have cancer, when the cancer's gone and you're no longer, you know, when all the tests come back negative, which is the good thing, which is the thing you hope and pray, you're still left by the the jolt of what you experienced when you did have cancer. Um, You're, you know, when you, you know, I deal with this. I work with this with a lot of my clients. They they've had severe, severe anxiety at times. And just when we get the symptoms down and you're able to say, oh, the anxiety is gone, you know, you found your oils, you found your coping skills, all these things, that's wonderful, and that's where a lot of the therapy stops. But in my work, that's actually where the good work begins, because you can start to look at the deep way in which that anxiety or that doubt that with um, that, uh, those symptoms actually changed you and clarified a few things. So many therapists let clients go. At that time, and of course, many clients want to go. Their life, they want to move on, they want to, and that's fine. That's their own prerogative. But I think what we're sort of saying in our book is that's the time where the deep work can happen, um, and it, it's hard work. Hmm.
0: So um, you say in your book that, and this is absolutely true. I think we all know it. Suffering is an inherent part of life that must be engaged, and that. How do we begin to accept that when the suffering is so overwhelming <laughs> that we can't even see anything positive?
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and that's and that's the that's the incredibly uh, challenging part of this. And I and I think you're you're really hitting uh, just such an important feature. And that is that acceptance is is so powerful. And I want to acknowledge that. Suffering is an inherent part of life. Um, but it's also true that while we all suffer, suffering does fall a little bit more disproportionately on some than others. And some people are going to feel it more, and, and the reality is going to be more encompassed by their suffering. And, and, and it is a struggle, and I would never want to have anyone try to just rush through to acceptance. I'd never want to invalidate somebody's pain by uh, by moving them through more quickly than possible, you know, and, and part of that, part of the work is trying to determine what is, um, what is uncomfortable and what is unbearable. And sometimes you have to just start slowly with, with trying to accept in small, uncomfortable ways. Um, and when the pain becomes too unbearable, take a break. But moving toward acceptance, understanding the reality of the situation is incredibly painful both what we hope is that it'll lead to a point in which people can really start questioning some of the assumptions that they held about the world that just aren't fitting anymore. So for me, and I didn't even know that I had these, I, I thought that I had to, I had thought these through. I kinda thought that the world was fair and good things happen to good people. And,
1: and maybe you didn't take case these explicitly. Like maybe if someone asked you that, you would have.
2: Just... I would mean, have denied it flatly, right? right? But somewhere in the in, in the deep recesses of my mind, at least on an implicit level, I was holding these assumptions because when this thing happened to my brother, I thought, well, gosh, what did he do to deserve this? What did what did his family do to deserve this? And and, and once we can once we accept what is, and that, that is so painful, and that is so hard. Because
1: I want to we want to be honest. But it, just because you accept suffering doesn't mean that suffering. Uh, suddenly, stopped. Sometimes that's when it hits you the hardest. It's like, well, crap! This is this is this is terrible, and I didn't want this. And that—that's what you're saying, right?
2: Right. And once you see it fully for what it is, then you will start having the autonomy to question the question the beliefs that we're holding up, and to start deconstructing and reconstructing those beliefs in a way that are a little bit more authentic to to your experience. So, I believe that I needed the jettison. Uh, and it was painful to do with this idea that things happen for a reason, and that good things happen to good people. And that's a painful thing to let go because apparently that had been that had been very deep inside my psyche. But once I could kind of extract that in the future, when things happened that seemed a little bit more senseless, uh, while still painful, they it did kind of fit into my broader revised set of beliefs that oh, I. I just have to be able to explain everything. Sometimes bad things really do just happen, and and, and it's not fair, and life isn't always fair in that way.
0: You know, many of us, I think, um, see things very black and white, you know. Um, If we're, you know, the world is good or bad, um, you know, uh, just the thing that brings us to this kind of introspection is pain and and emotional struggle, you know? When we have to take a look at an issue that we're dealing with that does not fit into the black or white, and we have to begin to examine it. And I know for me, um, it was the most painful thing in my life that brought me to a sense of spiritual connection, not religious, but spiritual connection, which gave me a direction that um, comforted me and made me feel as if I had, um, you know, I had support. And yeah, so yeah. I would not have come to that otherwise, or I don't believe I would have come to that otherwise. Uh, so I guess we all yeah. find it through pain. Hopefully we find it through pain.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's what we're saying. One of my favorite spiritual teachers is Richard Rohr, and he talks about um the two greatest teachers are great love and great suffering. And I just think that's so powerful. And I, I think there is a part of me, at least as human, I would love to have learned this, for great love. Um, I don't think I, I don't know if I would have. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think there is a place, too, like, to be to be honest is, and I love what you said, Randy, is, like, we can get through this, you know, you can see the great and that you learned through that, through that horrible, horrible, those, you're talking about those experiences. Um, And I think that's often, like, I want that for myself, too, but when I'm in the midst, like, when I was in the midst of, like, I remember, like, crying on the floor, wailing, that, you know, ugly cry, guttural cry after losing Daryl's brother, I could never have imagined emerging from it. And I think that's the piece, too, is that there is a time for everyone that that is going through these very clarifying moments, these, these existential crises in which I, I, we want to be honest—it's not easy. There is a period of time that is in the darkness, where it's disorienting, it's painful. You don't think you'll ever get through it, um, and that's actually part of the process too. And so, so many of our stories—and I think it's you know even, even easy for people to project that on us—that you know we wrote this book and look how great it is. and It turns out but there are some kinds of intense suffering. Um, you know, I, I think we have a little bit more hope now because we've sort of passed through that phase. But if, you, if we were to have written the book in the middle of the dark, I, think, I don't think it would have had some of the same ideas as well because it's all a part of the
0: problem. Right. And, you know, and I explained, um, well, I commented to you that I read your book, The Courage to Suffer, um, A New Clinical Framework for Life's Greatest Crises*, And um, I found it extremely valuable um in not only personally but in helping those who are trying to um well my work is helping those helping people recover from narcissistic abuse which is irrational there is no explanation the person holds no responsibility for what happened to them and um it is the most helpless feeling in the world and so going through your guide of how to deal with this, how to help people deal with this, is going to be so impactful in the work that I do. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so I really, really appreciate that. Um there was a quote um at the beginning of chapter two where you said where um Barbara Brown Taylor from Learning to Walk in the Dark says I have learned things in the dark that I could never have learned in the light, things that have saved my life over and over again, so that there is really only one logical conclusion. I need darkness as much as I need light. I really, really like that. Um, That just speaks to everything that we're talking about. So what does an encounter with darkness make us feel, disorients us? and? Reveals our vulnerability.
2: So you know, this kind of darkness, you know, like you said, it, it's disorienting. It, uh, I, I think some of the things that, that it can do is it, it kind of brings these existential themes to the forefront. It kind of uh, makes us encounter the reality of some of these uh, some of these givens of human existence. And when that happens, a lot of times what people will do is they want to avoid. And so they engage in in what researchers call, what clinicians call, experiential avoidance. Americans, are really good at this. We, uh, We have Netflix. We have our phones. We have our work. We have exercise. We have lots of things that we can just throw ourselves into to either avoid the pain, remember the pain, push it away. But that's a, that's a problem when when we're not willing to sit in that darkness, when we're not willing to name our pain and actually
0: experience
2: our pain. Ironically, it, it prolongs the pain. You know, it's a little bit of like an emotional procrastination strategy. You know, when when the Netflix show is over, the, the pain is still going to be there. Avoid the coping. We no, know it's one of the, the worst ways to cope. Um, and so for so many the darkness symbolically metaphorically and maybe even literally it can be so terrifying that, that we're just kind of uh, instinctually programmed to avoid it. But like you said there's so much that can be found in the darkness There's so much that can be revealed by remaining in the darkness feeling and naming the pain uh, the, that, that it's worth overcoming that avoidance.
1: Yeah and we hope to, part of the, the book like you, you named is to look at the value of the darkness. Um, you mm-hmm. know, and I want to say something. Each of the quotes that we put in our, each chapter, were very significant to us. That were even works that we read along the way <laughs> uh, when we were searching and trying to find all these answers. And, you know, Barbara Brown Gaylor, I, I do not speak highly enough of her work. And she talks about how we often have a like solar view of spirituality idea of spirituality is just in the light. So happiness, uh, centering, calm, all these things. And she actually argues in her book, um, uh, Learning to Walk in the Dark, is that we need uh, lunar, lunar spirituality. So just like the phases of the moon, um, the phases of the darkness, uh, we can actually find our grounding even when it's disorienting. And sometimes, you know, what we say in our book, sometimes it's like going back to the, the very basics other things that bring you connection uh, to other people and, and, and even to yourself. So, you know, I think the, the darkness in the, of itself is disorienting, and so but it's also so valuable. And so I think there is a fear that actually is instinctual that happens when we're, we're facing suffering. I think what we're asking people is to use use that fear, use that um, as information uh, without judgment so that you can actually glean some wisdom from that
0: hmm. that's a good that's a good point a good good thing to say um what how does this apply to most of the people that i work with uh, most people who have suffered um narcissistic abuse are suffering from complex ptsd yeah um and there's so much involved in that. Um, would you relate that? Would you think that um, your approach works for those who have um, that complex trauma, have suffered this com- Absolutely. complex? Uh-huh. Yeah. Absolutely,
1: Randy. I mean, I think that those people that are suffering, right, I think that's what we're trying to say with our book is, um so much in the past has been like, you know, just look at the symptom, get the symptom gone, you're fine, discharge you. <laughs> and things like chronic, complex PTSD are things that people live with for the rest of their lives um, on various intensities, right? And so right. It, it's actually a way, of, and what we actually argue towards the end of our book is we argue for authenticity, not in the sense of uh, it. Not in the sense of like a, a, how about this? We're arguing for authenticity in the sense of integration of that into your story. Um, And so part of the people that you get to work with that you're so privileged to work with, part of their story is emotional abuse, Um, uh, complex triggers, complex pain that will shape them for the rest of their lives. And when we can integrate that into the story of ourselves, we actually get to earn our power back because then it's, this is what's happened to me. This is where I'm at. And now it's, where do I want to go from here? So it's very empowering. Um, and yes, the integration happens because yes, they did not want this to be part of their story. Um, I do not want that to be a part of their story. I know you don't either, but it's this, it's this integration that happens when we're able to experience it, name it, accept it, and then we start to integrate it so that then we, we know how to go forward um, that allows us to, to then find connection again with ourselves. Um, so, I absolutely, I, I think it's 100% applicable. Well,
0: that's really, really great news. <laughs> um that's really yeah it's really good news and i know a lot of people are excited about that you know and um and and to my listeners you know um you can contact um daryl and sarah van tongeren um or you can contact me because now i have the method (laughs) they gave me the method um but it's great yeah um so You talk about um, overcoming suffering requires building meaning. And you define meaning as the subjective feeling that our experiences and life make sense, matter, and are purposeful. Um, And then you talk about the three main components of meanings, coherence, significance, and purpose. Can you go through those three um, components and explain
2: yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's funny as a as a researcher who studies meaning in life. A lot of times, people get nervous that it's this really you know big you know topic. But uh, and, and while it is, I think these three components just make a lot of intuitive sense. So,
1: and we want to clarify too that we're talking about the meaning in life rather than the meaning of life. Right, not like the big capital M, you know, meaning, but just kind of how people
2: make, a, make sense of finding meaning in their own lives, in their own ways. So the first component of meaning is what people call coherence. And so co- coherence is when things make sense. Um, so, Randy, part of what you were talking about was when people are trying to explain why something happened, If we can, if we can kind of make sense of something... Then it feels meaningful, but things that are, are senseless right. often to us feel very meaningless. Like my brother dying and uh, the him leaving, you know, three kids, very young kids.
1: That seems very senseless. Or like the your, your the people that you with, the abuse that they endured. That that is senseless. Like it right. absolutely is. Right. And so that that's gonna
2: that's gonna really strain their meaning. They're, that's gonna feel meaningless. They may feel a little bit. Less sure of their own meaning, and, and for good reason. It just, it just doesn't make sense. The second component is significance. Um, you know, and significance, people ask the question, Do I matter? And so when someone feels as if they matter, mattering is what makes people feel significant. You feel like you're a person of worth. And so when people are suffering, they often don't feel like they matter, they feel insignificant, they feel worthless. I'm thinking about your abuse survivors. They may feel insignificant. They may, they may be receiving direct messages that they're not worthwhile. Yes. And that is so undercutting to their sense of meaning. And then the third component is purpose. And purpose, and you can think about this in lots of different ways, this kind of answers the question of like, why am I here? Like what's, what, what's my intention? What's my direction in life? And when people feel like they have an intention or they have a goal or they have a a direction that they're headed, life feels can feel pretty purposeful and, and pretty meaningful. But suffering, sometimes it's a broad sense of that. It, it kind of strips away our ability to move towards something intentional. And, and and so when people, when things don't make sense and people don't feel like they matter and they don't have a purpose, they can really get mired in a sense of meaninglessness, which can just further perpetuate this cycle of suffering. And, and so... You know, one of, the, one of the suggestions we make is that building meaning then might be one of the surest ways to kind of break the cycle of suffering and to help people flourish in the midst of their suffering.
1: Yeah, so it's finding meaning, and you know, even just start with your like, even starting with the question personally for all of us is when you think about it, when you when you look at your life and you think about the times when you feel felt most connected to yourself, to Something greater than yourself, um, when are those times? you know what what makes your life filled with meaning? And I think that's the best place to start for all of us, right Like that's the place where we can each look and say like, okay we can we can do something with that right we, If we're integrating this suffering into our story, we're living authentically, we can we can ask ourselves, what are the times where we feel we feel connected? We feel like our lives have meaning. Um, and, 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 you know, for me, when I was in the midst of all of this, it, it was often, and it still is, when I'm in nature. Um, nature is something that gives my life a lot of meaning, a lot of connection, a sense to something greater. And so I found myself then seeking those places of nature as almost like a, a sanctuary for solitude, for connection, um and I think you have to start there, and right. Maybe that looks very simple, uh, but it looks, it's very significant
0: for all of us. Hmm. Um, so, directing it back to um, the pandemic and and what we're going through, um, you know, we're all wondering what's going to happen when this is over. Is there going to be nor is it going to be normal? Is there going to be a new normal? Um, so that is definitely an episode of exist- existential suffering, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. When we had that conversation, I mean, didn't yeah. Well,
1: and it's that reality yeah. that, like, again, to go back to what we said at the beginning, though, uh, we have a loss of control. We're afraid of being alone. Who yeah. am I in this? Um, if I've lost a job, if I have not been able to do the hobby that I've enjoyed, um, and then the fear of the fact that we could die from this virus, right? So it's here to those existential questions for sure. And I think maybe what I'm seeing from, obviously, our work, our life, our life's work, um, I'm seeing what's happening on a broad scale to be a really, really reaction against those four fears. So people don't want to believe they're going to die, but they don't wear a mask public, or people want to have control, so they need to go get their hair dyed, the hairdresser, the way that they used to be able to. And so it's this idea that if I can just get normal back, then everything's fine. But the truth is we've ignored all that has happened. So it's a, it's a version of circumventing the deep-asked question if we just stick on that, is it going to be normal? Is it going to be normal? Is it going to be normal? That's where we can sort of um, – we get stuck when we're avoiding why do we want it to be normal what are we afraid of why are we avoiding uh avoiding the fact that this this most likely has changed us forever right um, you know it, you know like this is the thing that i think about uh for people that have suffered you go through something like this the loss of a job and that's the massive change of your daily schedule pretty drastically pretty quickly. Uh, Even if you go back to work and everything's fine, everything goes back to the same, your inside psychological experience is forever changed. And so that's what we're talking about even in this book is you can go back to quote-unquote normal, but the deep psyche of yourself is then affected by that. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, But we just avoid it is what we do. It's, it's It's somewhat of our human nature. We want to avoid the pain. You know, we always joke at dinner like, would you rather, you know, be fit uh, without having to exercise or, you know, be rich without
0: having to work? You know, I was like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> like,
1: no one wants the pain or the hard work.
0: Like, it's, it's part exactly. of humanity, I think. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, if, um, for those who believe they had control over their life, this is going to be very devastating. Um, because the point is, I mean, if we look at this whole picture, (laughs) I'm a big picture person because for me that gives things meaning. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: You know, but (laughs) if we look at this whole thing, we have to understand um, the point is we have no control. We have (laughs) absolutely no control over our lives. And so I guess for some people – That is a really tough um, concept that they're dealing with, but can't look away from that. I mean, you can try, but when you're isolated and there's nothing to do, I mean, that is the most obvious um, thing to me about this, that it shows us all that no matter how much we try to plan and control, we absolutely cannot control the way yeah. our lives go. So is that a hard concept for many people?
2: Oh, yeah, it really is.
0: So when the
2: um, when back in the 80s, uh, Shirley Taylor, a world-famous uh, psychologist uh, who wrote extensively on flipping and she came up with this theory of cognitive adaptation, she said that our, our sense of control, she called it the illusion of control, is, is one of three positive illusions that humans have that are really important for kind sort of adaptive, healthy functioning. And so she argued, you know, it's it's kind of innate in our human nature to believe that we have control. And, you know, adversity, stress, suffering, things like this will reveal that illusion. But sure enough, over time people will eventually go back to embracing that illusion of control again. You know, because on the one hand, it's like, well, I, I, I need to believe that something that I do in this world is making a difference, otherwise I may get pretty depressed pretty quick. And on the other hand, believing that I, I can control things that are outside my control is actually just sort of a recipe for more, for more heartache, because I can't control other people. I can't control other people's reactions. I can't control the world. I can't control invisible viruses that might even sweep through and affect us on a global scale. I think for a lot of people, they don't like to believe that. They don't like to think that they don't have control. They like to think if they work hard enough or outsmart it, they they, they can't master the situation. Um, so it, it's tough. So I think if you're listening and you're like, I don't want to believe that. It's, you're, you're not alone. Not a lot of people want to believe that. Um, they want to accept that control is an
1: illusion. And I think for me, like another word, and I, this is what I'll do for some of my clients that I work with is Another name for, like, the fear of groundlessness, which is the loss of control, uh, the existential fear of loss of control, is is existential freedom. Um, and so something that's really fascinating is on the other side of the same coin uh, that we want control is we also want freedom. And so in some ways I've found in my own personal life that when I want control the most is when I'm the the least happy, or the least connected, the least centered, and the times when I'm okay with freedom, okay with accepting that there's a lot of things out of my control, or or when I'm the most centered, and so, um, you know, really pushing in a little bit to say, uh, again, exploring where that fear and that that desire to control things come from, uh, rather than, you know, trying to to try try to control things. sure, when I was in the midst of existential, you know, fears with. Carol's health, um, I would try to control, you know, did you drink enough water? Did you exercise? Did you do these things? And, like, yes, those things make a difference. But at the same time, I found, like, I oh, just going crazy and feeling like I, I couldn't even breathe, you know. Right, right. Um, and then there's the other side is the freedom of just being, like, I'm just, we're going to try our
0: best and see what happens.
1: I think that's, there's, there's right. some space I get to
0: that. Right. So, you know, people say to me sometimes, well, if I can't control it, why, what would motivate me? Why would I even do anything? And the, 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 the um, what do I want to say? Things, um, it's more about influence than it is control. So, so we can influence the path of our life. We can influence the future. Um, we can't control it, but we can do things that influence it. So there's a difference like between influence and control, right?
2: Yeah. That's in our book, we talk a little bit about understanding the things you you yeah. can affect and the things that are outside of your control. So I like that. At I
1: that like level. the word of influence. That's great, right? Yeah. 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 It's the right. idea of, like, you know, I, I think that the other piece is, in some ways, I think when we can let go of the need to control it, um, we can also then let are bad or things that are scary or trauma or narcissistic do we encounter narcissistic people randomly um, and we don't have control over that then in some ways that that's free from help
0: right right so yeah so we can you know it, it it doesn't mean that we have to let go of a plan, or you know, an idea, or a project, or, or whatever, um, or a goal. You know, it's not about letting go right. of the goal. It's about understanding that we can work towards that. Um, mm-hmm. But then, right. basically, <laughs> we have to just understand. That life is going to take us in different directions, so we've got to be prepared right. for that and open minded so this is all very good it 's a good way to think, but it it's a challenge for many people to get to that point um, um, let's there was something I wanted to say okay um, oh, I wanted to talk about um this um surreal kind of world that we're living in where we go out and everybody's wearing masks and people treat you like you're a leper. They step back and away from you. Um, (laughs) This is just so hard for us to wrap our heads around, right?
2: Yeah. Right. Absolutely.
0: Again, and it's very isolating,
2: you know, we're, humans are, are just naturally social, right? We're designed to be in social relationships. Um And so when people are kind of moving the other way, uh when we have to be far away from each other, that's tough. That just cuts across how we're designed to be. Sarah and I try to take a walk most nights, and we do a really good job of avoiding other people and darting from one side of the sidewalk to another. And, you know, <laughs> but it's so funny because, when we see another human out, I, I have this instinctual desire. I've never met them before just to cross the street to wave and say, hi, and, you know, your dog looks great. Because I'm just kind of desperate for that connection um, that I, I'm not always getting with my Zoom meetings or, you know, right, exactly. calls.
0: Right. And so, yeah. I that, mean, I'm, so, I'm someone day. that likes to – I like to smile at people. I, I smile at everybody. Yeah. And I'm walking through yeah. the store, and I'm smiling, and I'm thinking, nobody can see that. Maybe they can see my <laughs> eyes, the expression in my eyes, right. maybe. But they're not seeing me yeah. smile at them, and it's weird because that just, I yeah. can't connect.
2: Right. right. We're, we're taking away a bit of the way that we show our humanity to other people. Well,
0: a bit of a way that brings us meaning,
2: right? right. A bit of a
1: way that, that it's human connection. Human connection, nature, those are the things that bring meaning personally and so it has been this has also been a challenge I think to all of us is not only it's it's engaged our existential fears but it's also engaged the things that we that bring us meaning right and that mean, something that brings me a lot of meaning is I I compete in triathlons and so all of the triathlons this summer have been (laughs) and so like I find myself wanting to train and I, I I'm I can't really train for anything right now and so, you know, there's that identity spread, right? And then the thing that brings me meaning. So it is, we're, we're all sort of in the midst of, of all of this. So realizing, I think, the other piece is this consciousness of we are in the midst of a collective trauma. Uh, we are in the midst of a collective uh, experience. And that that is going to erode meaning. That is going to challenge our existential fears. And I think sometimes it's just the, the education around that, to like, when we come out home from the grocery store and we're exhausted more than normal, um, there's a reason. You know, it's not, we're not crazy. It's, that's a human experience. It's challenged our existential fear. It's challenged our meaning, which is our, a way we can cope with our existential fear. So, of course, we're exhausted. So, you know, that can also help remove some of that stigma, too, that we carry with us.
0: I just I wonder how many people are going to develop agoraphobia, you know, for, from from being home.
1: Yeah, agoraphobia and like, OCD. Right, right now, those are very adaptive
0: responses, uh,
1: and we need those in some ways. like guess the protective way of acting right now, and you know, as you and I both know, it happens when we are. It's an adaptive coping skill now, but once this is behind us, uh, it hopefully will no longer be adaptive, and we need to then. We'll have to work to overcome those skills that we just worked so hard to learn right now. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do wonder that, Randy, myself, <laughs> um, even <laughs> myself. Even if we were we were we were walking and we're like, okay, there's another human across
0: the street, and like normally we're like petting their dog and yes, it's it's pretty bizarre. So, if you were to give us, um, you know, one, two, three, or one, two, three, four step for how to go through. This pandemic in a healthy-minded way, what would you say?
2: Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we suggest is thinking about finding meaning. Uh, Then you think about your head, your heart, your hands. And so all of these ways are ways of making connection. Because like you really pointed out, and I thought it was so beautiful, you were saying that you find meaning by connecting to something bigger than yourself. And I think think most people are just like you. And so with the head, for a lot of people, that's a sense of spirituality – and religion um, it's a way of connecting with this larger story that's bigger than you. Uh, the heart is connecting with other people. It's relationships. When we ask people, you know, what's the biggest source of meaning in life, most people will say it's relationships. And so, well, right now that's kind of a strange and odd uh, process for many people. You can still try to connect with people virtually or from a distance. Or raise, people. We have to, raise <laughs> to people. Raise to people. Um, that, that's going to be another way that you can find meaning. And then with the hands, to the degree that you can um, help other people. So we talk about virtues in our book, and one of the ones we talk about is the sense of vulnerable compassion. So people who have experienced suffering do have a deep sense of vulnerability, and they know what what that pain feels like, and hopefully they can turn that into a sense of compassion for other people who are also suffering. And so you know, kind of thinking broadly about, how can I connect with with the spiritual, with the divine, with my head, with other people, with my heart, and kind of think about others and, and serving others, acting virtuously? Kind of think about my hands. Those would be kind of three broader ways of of finding meaning.
1: Yeah, and I think those things that we can find connection with, right? Um, I was going to say we could, you know, practice connection, right? We can practice right now very concretely. This is where we are, and so this this pandemic that, and like sort of with Sarah was saying, we have to then tailor our head, heart, and hands towards the, the act of being in this pandemic. Um, so it's, one, it's practicing acceptance. Two, it's using fear as information. So when we are afraid and we're in the grocery store and we're heightened sense, being aware of that and saying, like, oh, what is this trying to tell me? This is trying to tell me that this is weird. Um, this is trying to tell me that this isn't normal. This isn't what I, how I used to connect with people. And then we use a source of connection, so finding connections in ourselves with the divine or, or spiritual uh, in nature and with others. And so doing that in a way that is the acceptance of what is right now. So, of course, it may not look like how it was even seven weeks ago, but it, it can look like what it is now. And so not shying away from that is really, really right. important. And, and I can, think that's and great, actually, yeah. yeah, it can help us, right? It can help us where we're at now.
0: Right, to connect with what you're actually feeling rather than just allowing the feeling to take you over, to actually connect yeah. with it. And, yeah. You know. mm-hmm. Okay, and so that's a good one. Um, anything else that we can do to keep ourselves from going crazy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, just in,
2: and, and I'm, I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to anybody else. My routine, I'm, I'm, I kind of enjoy routines. Uh, and routines kind of help us structure our day. They kind of help us. We get you
1: in control. Yeah.
2: They kind of give us a little bit of a sense of meaning. So sometimes just making sure you have a routine, even if, even if it's a new routine. Um, so Sarah and I, this is very unusual for us, but we're both able to work at home. So now we can have lunch together each day, which was something we couldn't do pre-pandemic because we were both at our jobs. And so we're able to have this little lunch routine. And so we, I, I actually look forward to that in the morning. Um, and then we try to take a walk in the evening and so we've kind of instilled a few little routines that can give us things to look forward to and provide a little bit of structure for an otherwise kind of structureless uh, day that can feel a little bit like it's slipping away. So a routine right. I think would be helpful for many of us.
1: Yeah And I just say a lot of self-compassion. I think that's what we need right now. Um, some people are responding very productively and all these amazing projects and big spread and, and all these painting shops and, and then there are some people like me that I, I just need to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um and so just realizing that right now, um I would encourage people to listen to them how, Listen listen to what they're feeling, listen to what and then see if you can offer yourself something from that, right? Rather than often we shame ourselves, we shouldn't be that way. You know, I always say we should all over ourselves. Right, we should all all over over ourselves. ourselves. Right, (laughs) right. Right. Like just listening to yourself. I think that's the other piece. And again, if we use our our fear, our feelings as information, if you're feeling disconnected and isolated, reach out. Reach out to people. And yes, it may not be embarrassing the person, but um, I will say this, Zoom or Skype is better, or FaceTime is better than nothing. Um, and so if you're feeling isolated, reach out to people. Um, that's really important thing. And, if, you know, if for people that are listening that are feeling like what they're doing is not working out, don't be afraid to reach out to therapists. Um, I think that's the other piece is I think therapists can offer such a world of support to so many people as well.
0: Right, so if we're you know some people are telling me, I just feel so unmotivated, I'm sitting on the couch all day, I'm watching a lot of you know Netflix, which I'm doing at night, but i'm <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not the right. day, but anyway, um yeah, they're like, and i can't just I can't get motivated, I don't want to exercise, I don't want to walk, I just like I'm like,, bleh. so yeah. how do we motivate ourselves? I guess small steps at a time, right, little things.
2: Yeah, I think small steps in, in, in finding that thing that provides a little, that little spark of meaning, you know, mm-hmm. if that's, uh, you know, maybe a, a new hobby. Well,
1: so. so I'm just going to say even with I mean, that's very, you yeah. know, that's very <laughs> advantageous there, <laughs> but I was just going to say, like, doing something as simple as can you sit outside, can you try right. to change that scenery as like, just something small. Again, I will say, what, if you can maybe even ask them, what brings them life meaning? Not, like, den, like, previously, because, again, I would say travel, and hiking, and all my favorite thoughts for now is overrun, and I can't do anymore. So, for me, it's, like, okay, nature. Nature used to bring it to me. So, instead of eating inside, I'm actually going to start eating outside today. And just something mm. simple as that, like, can help just give the spark enough right. um, that I mean because to me, that sounds like, maybe like, hopelessness is what that feels like. That's what it sounds like to me. It feels hopeless. And so, just changing the scenery just, as close,
0: just, like just a little
1: can be, give us
0: the boost we need. Mm, okay. That's really a good idea. And, I don't know, we have just about a minute or so left. Um, did you have a message or anything else that you wanted to share? And also tell us if you have a website and how we can get your book.
2: Yeah. So, uh I
1: have a website at darylvantongren.com.
2: And my
0: website
1: is And then you can follow me on Instagram at The Exponential Therapist.
2: And then you can find
1: our books uh, on Amazon
2: or our publisher's website, which is Templeton Press, called The Courage to Suffer. And
1: also anywhere books are sold. I know that a lot of small businesses are suffering right now. And so selling and asking, calling your local bookstore and asking them to get to a copy, they can do that as well. Okay. Good yeah,
0: good, thank you for having it Andy. We really really appreciate it so much, yeah, I really appreciate you and the work that you're doing and um you know I love learning about this stuff um and applying it so your book's great um for those of us who are listening and um, really can relate to this, um, pick up a copy of The Courage to Suffer and take a look at the process. Anyway, it's been great. It's been wonderful. Have a wonderful day doing, having lunch, I guess. Lunch will be well, the you. most yeah. exciting thing you're going to do <laughs> next. So enjoy your lunch. I'm going to have lunch too, you know. <laughs> um, but anyway, thank have you. a wonderful, wonderful day. It's been a pleasure.
2: Great. Thank you so thank
0: much. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye.